This is the EPLOG audio experience. Film is clearly a sophisticated art, possibly the most important art of the 20th century with a rather complex history of theory and practice, writes James Monaco in his book, How to Read a Film. So far in our podcast, The Artists, we have had filmmakers, writers, critics, programmers, musicians, thinkers, defining their combinatorial skills. We at Metaphysical Lab have been striving to expand the realm of our podcast, which in turn gives a wider uh, canvas to the understanding of our experiences. And also we have tied up with Epilogue Media, the podcasting network. So you can find us on their website, epilogmedia slash the artist. And of course, you can continue to listen to us on the platforms that you choose from Apple Podcasts to Spotify to GeoSavon to Google Podcasts. Everything is mentioned in the description. I'm your host. Suchita and I'm looking forward to a wonderful journey ahead with all of you. So what is original? How is music in cinema changing? What is influencer culture? What's between Elon Musk and Twitter? What's with Jeff Bezos and eating cockroaches? This and lot more questions being answered by Madhavan Narayanan, who's a senior journalist with leading publications from the Quint to Business Standard to the Economic Times to Mumbai Mirror to BBC Studio and a lot more. Of course, we have seen him on television late night shows as well. His most recent adventure has been translating a 1980 Tamil novel on the Chennai film industry by the acclaimed writer Sujata Rangarajan into English that's got published by HarperCollins. Stay tuned, guys, for this very, very interesting episode. Enjoy. Hello, Madhavan, sir. Welcome to a podcast, The Artist. Good morning. Uh, good morning in the Delhi heat. I've switched on the or switched off the fan for your benefit. And so <laughs> I can't say I haven't sweated for you. <laughs> you are a master mm-hmm. of everything. You talk about music and politics and movies and technology. And I mean, there is this whole range of knowledge and understanding that you have in terms of and you give opinions and you go on various channels nice how does this sort of nice to be called master <laughs> because it used to be called jack you know so but yeah i i guess being a journalist helps because this is one profession in which you're officially authorized to uh, dip your fingers into various areas and subjects and uh, hmm. often get paid for it so i remember yeah. going back into my first job interview where in the Times of India, where I joined as a trainee and I was asked, why do you want to become a journalist? So I told them something straight Mm. from the heart, which really works when you're 20 years old or something like that. So I said, I like writing and I'm interested in all subjects. I think it kind of Mm. fits in with what I've done in the subsequent three, four decades. How do you sort of uh, dig into all the subjects and yet have an opinion in terms of almost uh, to the level of mastering them uh, because you give opinions. So what is it that, how, how does it function? Do you sort of read fast? Do you imbibe fast? What are the, what are the skills that are needed to do that? I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. It's a fascinating question because I've been thinking about it yeah. and I would give it yeah. to you in three straight bullet points. The first thing is uh, <laughs> don't forget your high school lessons. I think, I think what we learned between um, the, 
the fifth or sixth standard and the tenth standard, or maybe the eleventh or twelfth, twelfth uh, grade, or whatever you want to call it, it's extremely useful in the long run if you really know uh, how to be uh, loving your studies and not just get marks your, in your examination, but be actually be interested in the subjects, whether it's physics or whether it's geography or it's uh, English, or in my case, that even included Tamil, in which I've just translated mm -hmm. a novel into English. So that's uh, yes. lesson number one. Remember your high school stuff. Mm. Lesson number two is you never stop learning. Mm. So, uh, you know, in business, yeah. we call something called back backward integration. When if a company that manufactures uh, uh, polyester, like Reliance, ends up uh, mm. making polyester yarn and then gets, in, gets into petrochemicals. So uh, mm. knowledge is no different from industrialization. You acquire a certain subject and uh, in order to do that better, you sort of learn about another related subject. So for me, economics is what I've studied in college and uh, uh, the other things uh, related to economics, such as politics or sociology, have been acquired tastes. Of course, I did a master's in politics, if it helps. Uh, but I've also got interested in sociology and anthropology or whatever, although I'm not too informed on these subjects. The fact is that if you want to learn a subject, well, uh, it pays to be interested in the ecosystem of that subject. And it one thing leads yeah. to the other and it goes. And the third thing that might help is uh, that I've been blessed by... Uh, a long career in journalism in which you're officially uh, sort of authorized and socially encouraged to uh, knock at doors and make phone calls and attend meetings and attend seminars and get paid and get free lunches and keep on learning and all these things. So I keep joking that if each of the press conference I attended was to be counted as a classroom lecture, um, I could have got uh, probably about half a dozen degrees now and maybe a PhD. I'd like to joke, although in <laughs> what subject I wouldn't know. So uh, that is what led me to actually starting Knowledge Factory with my partners and co-founders Amit Prabhu and Veena Vaidinathan. Uh, Knowledge Factory is an event uh, of what we call insight ideas, insights, ideas and trivia. It's an annual uh, mm. day-long festival in which we deliberately put together various kinds of speakers from various kinds of subjects with no fettering as in we deliberately explore all frontiers of knowledge to in a way that is entertaining and educative because learning doesn't stop so that was actually partially inspired by uh, my general love of all subjects and partly partially by the blessing i got in front uh, in the form of uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of press conferences and meetings and interviews I've attended, which has exposed me to a wide range of subjects and enabled me to join the dots between seemingly unconnected things. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this knowledge factory sounds super interesting. When is the next session happening? How are you guys uh, planning that? Oh, interesting. The planning hasn't completely begun because usually it happens in the first quarter of every calendar year. Uh, the, mm. So last two years have been obviously online because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But earlier that we had it yeah. in Delhi, uh, Mumbai, Bangalore and Mangalore like a roadshow. And it has happened in, um, you know, in January once in March otherwise. So March is what we are looking at. Uh, tell me Madhavan, sir, you, I was reading your blog, um, Side Dish, which has this 
one write-up you've done where you've, where you've compared Gulzar Saab mm-hmm. with T.S. Eliot um, and how uh, the movie Gharonda, mm-hmm. one of the title, one of the songs mm-hmm. that Gulzar Saab mm-hmm. wrote, Ek Akela Ek Sher Mein, is, has some sort of a commonality, if not similarity, uh, with um, T.S. Eliot's poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Mm-hmm. So I was reading that and I just thought that there's so much of similarity in just the way you're seeing it, mm-hmm. in your perspective, mm-hmm. and also perhaps in your choice of words, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. except that this is in Hindi and this is in English. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about poetry and we are talking about two writers coming with the same perspective on things, mm-hmm. what, how would you sort of then define the original piece of writing a poetry what is original and does it even exist i think it's a fascinating question let me begin by telling you an old joke we used to have during college days saying that if you uh, if you copy from one it's plagiarism and if you do it from a hundred it's a phd so <laughs> so if you have lots of citations instead of cut and paste mm-hmm. paras then you're actually a, uh, yeah. you're a doctor in your in front of your name instead of a uh, a lawsuit in a court challenging you for copyright violation or something. Having said that, let me mm. say that uh, I think uh, I have thought a lot about this. You know, let me quote uh, Paramahamsa Yogananda, uh, who uh, yeah. I have attended uh, some of this. I mean, I'm part of a group that had uh, mm. attends uh, his teachings or um, learns, tries mm. to lean, learn from him. And he said once that no thought is your own. Because he actually speaks at a metaphysical level. And since you're talking about mm. a podcast for a metaphysics lab, I can tell you at a metaphysical level, imbibing thoughts from literally from the atmosphere around you, if you believe in the fact yeah. that there are vibrations and waves around you all the time. Okay, that's one way of looking. Yeah. The second thing yeah. is more mundane or more, uh, you know, uh, ordinary way of understanding things is that all words and all thoughts come from uh, each other. So sometimes uh, yeah. uh, ideas uh, emerge unconsciously or subconsciously uh, from what you may have read. And the creative artist has to be careful in ensuring that you're not repeating what somebody else has said and calling it original completely unconsciously. It's not plagiarism, or, but it's a sort yeah. of a feeling where you might unconsciously be expressing something which you've read somewhere and you think is original because you've forgotten where you read it. Okay, that is what yeah. I call uh, uh, what I call uh, class two plagiarism. <laughs> okay, but <laughs> the third way of looking at it is that you're inspired by somebody uh, where you read somebody yeah. and you the thoughts close and they take different forms in you and you express them. And the fourth is what I would call very simply the human condition. Uh, Common things like love, anxiety, uh, disappointment, heartbreaks are all Mm -hmm. great stuff for, uh, you know, creative expression, whether you're an artist as in a visual artist, whether you're a filmmaker or a, a, you know, poet. I can also quote another song by Guzar, which is actually um, from that movie, what was that? I forget the name. It was directed by Vishal Bhardwaj. Uh, uh, Marches. Marches ke baad, he made another one 
between musical patterns between words between thoughts between feelings between poets yeah. so if you read a poem by pablo neruda and you read another one by jose luis borges and you will find that uh, love law and poets are the same uh, aging is the same looking back into life is the same you know how many mediocre heartbreak songs go into the top of the pops it happens essentially mm. because heartbreaks are the same story so uh if every a uh, two bit teeny bopper who's just been dumped by a boyfriend or a girlfriend likes to identify with a simple sounding um, heartbreak song or a love song if you are in love that's what makes singers like arijit singh famous i mean i'm sorry to sound patronizingly uh, sort of uh, critical but you know these are common emotions you know if you if you take the beatles singing yesterday all my troubles yeah. seem so far away uh, you know it sounds it's one of the most recorded and sung songs because it yes. is it is so simple and so identifiable that everybody he or she thinks the song was written for her or him that's how it works mm, of course yeah. there are deeper poets there are higher emotions as i call them i like to use the word higher for a more abstract uh, social feelings of, such as the one expressed by a sahil udyanvi or a or a or a fez but Uh, the cut long story short it's all about getting the feelings and uh, finding the similarities at least i have fun finding similarities partly because uh, a lot of creative artists are pretty much similar in their quest is sometimes they're looking for themselves and sometimes they're looking for love <laughs> and um, yeah. into use your line it's all a karmic journey yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely you mentioned about vibrations you mentioned about attending uh uh the workshops of uh, pramahansa yogananda and uh, tell me uh this is just sort of come since you've mentioned about it and because it's something that i really like to explore and i'm like too much into it perhaps mm-hmm. uh do you think uh, with your understanding i'm sure you have dug into it as well do the vibrations mm-hmm. exist in terms of your everyday everyday life or do you think that the practicality of living the life overtakes our meta existence i you answer the question yourself actually the point is that the vibrations exist and mm-hmm. uh, the when you are too busy creating vibrations in a physical world you lose touch with the metaphysical world although the trigger for this itself might have Uh, been lying in the metaphysical world so you get your inspirations or impulses from somewhere out there 
you know hmm. uh, suddenly I, at the age of over the age of 50 i'm asking myself why did i get so interested in culture and politics and why not engineering and uh, architecture now the fact is that at right now i'm getting interested in engineering uh, whereas at the age of 12 to 16 that's when people like to choose what they want to do i had no interest in engineering I love physics, mm. so it mm. kind of gives mm. you an idea. Now I'm following Instagram handles on quantum physics, and that is mm. where this whole mm. vibration business uh, gets very scientific. So at some level, yes. you can connect between the vibrations in poetry and the vibrations in quantum physics. But I'll spare you the agony of that, you know, very fuzzy sort of a world. Maybe they are connected, maybe they are not, or maybe I'm imagining this, but the fact is that, you know, there are feelings somewhere and there are thoughts somewhere and there are vibrations out there. Physics tells you that it's true. But yeah, uh, to realize that in everyday life uh, and understand, you know, um, certain things requires a certain level of evolution, certain level of patience, certain level of growing up and a certain level of what you would call silence. That's why meditation and stuff helps because it kind of helps you. I'm not a great meditator. I do it sometimes. I, I do it in small bits, but whenever you relax and let the vibrations around you uh, take over, as in you become more sensitive to them, it makes sense. Uh, just a small um, experiment might help. You know, if you're meditating or asked to meditate in silence, after a while you begin to hear the chirping of the sparrows nearby louder. You never do that when you're, let's say, busy uh, uh, making breakfast or uh, even uh, the, the sparrows were yeah. always chirping. You listen to yeah. it more intently when you're meditating. So that applies to yeah. nearly everything. It applies to thoughts and feelings mm. as well. I mean, I'm putting it in an analogical or simple, simple way. I think the deeper you meditate, there are people who begin to get intuitions, people who get, uh, you know, you can go from inspiration to intuition to enlightenment. It depends on the stage of evolution you're in. That's the way I understand yeah. it. Although I must say I'm in nursery school and I'm talking about what a PhD might be. <laughs> so just just to uh, just to extend that thought, since since you mentioned about the meditation part, so so do you think with your experience and with your connecting the dots, mm -hmm. if we are talking about enlightenment, does enlightenment help in today's world, or do you think? working in a regular practicality uh, is what it is as you uh, as you can see i like to connect strange thoughts so let me now bring in mahatma gandhi you know apparently he had a secretary yeah. called Pyarelal, uh, and that was the mm. time when one rupee had 16 nanas so he used to mm. say if you cannot become a 16 <laughs> if you cannot become a 16 anna gandhi you should try to become a four anna gandhi which means mahatma gandhi is um, too much of an ideal person, we all cannot be. But if we try to be only 25% of Mahatma Gandhi, you know, it's pretty good. The same thing goes for enlightenment. You know, instead of enlightenment, if you look at a forana version of the enlightenment, which is simply called peace of mind, <laughs> then you can uh, actually, uh, at least you will stop having road rage. You'll stop uh, judging your neighbors too much. You will probably get your big, the bookshelf behind you slightly more organized. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> uh, these are little uh, pocketfuls of gains you might have. I know I'm I'm talking more than mm. doing, but I'm just uh, joking a bit. But uh, the fact is that uh, at least it helps you manage your day. 
I, I do some mm. meditation on Sunday so that it kind of uh, enables me to be a bit more in control of the circumstances or actually it's more about keeping control of yourself in the circumstances yes that helps so yeah. that's the, what you call a white belt level the black belt is when you know everything about the universe because you've had something at the mm. in middle of your forehead i've only heard about it i haven't talked uh, experienced it or uh, interesting yeah yeah mm-hmm. very interesting very interesting uh, connection madhavan sir tell me about because you have a keen interest in the music mm-hmm. in cinema and uh, uh, i've been sort of doing a lot of research on music lately in terms of you know whatever the projects and stuff so when we talk about music sir we see a certain kind of music that the hollywood films have mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the way they play out the music mm-hmm. in a film mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, like for example just 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 to plainly give scorsese these entire scenes are connected with music mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. if if we go uh, towards french cinema you will not hear anything mm-hmm. yeah, there's no music it's most playing with the sound mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and if we come to the bollywood mm-hmm. landscape we see that we have songs mm-hmm. and songs are play a huge part in uh, unraveling the story mm-hmm. uh and they connect with uh, the audiences as well that's how the culture plays what do you think that the design the way the music is designed in a film uh is a is a reflection of the culture and uh, how do how do you how do you foresee mm-hmm. it uh unraveling now sujita this is what i actually initially suggested that we should speak about when we got talking about this podcast you know so i've been thinking mm. a lot about this although i've not uh, uh, studied it as much as i would have liked to mm. for instance french cinema what mm. you said is a revelation to me i watched a bit of godard uh, mm. or uh, maybe uh, uh, through for here or there but mm. Um, mm. Uh, the point is in hollywood uh, i i have watched a couple of scorsese movies but it never occurred to me i could rack my head about tarantino but couldn't find the music but i remember david lean's movies uh, were very rich in mm. music lawrence of arabia mm. and uh, bridge on the river kwai and uh, also uh, you know of course dr shivago which is very famous for his movies so let me put it in a nutshell for you you know um, mm. uh, hollywood is uh, largely about music for cinema in which music becomes part of the storytelling even in an instrumental sort of a way where a sign of foreboding or a connect connections of the kind that you talk about scorsese becomes very critical okay yeah um uh, in uh, so it's in a sense part of the narrative although it is yeah. in the background so background music becomes very very important or they make out and out musicals like a my fair lady or a you know saturday night fever okay um the indian films tend to be a mix of the two because every indian film can be called a musical if you use hollywood yardsticks so it is not music yeah. for cinema but it is what i call music in cinema okay hmm. at the same time there are uh, uh, what we call story situations connected with uh, the songs in some of the hmm. films uh, uh, so that either to provide dramatic contrast but or as actually part of the narrative itself so the uh, piano songs of the 1960s come into mind a lot of these piano songs are about uh, rich people falling out with poor lovers you know so mm. you you have what is called the class conflict in a marxian sense expressed through 
song sequences, you know, uh, whether it is, uh, you know, Mana hai, mehfil asi hai, lekin ye meri nahi hai, Zahir's songs goes. I think that is from Gale Lagja or something. Uh, so uh, there are many, there are lots of, it's been written about piano songs or the class conflict songs of the 60s. So music for cinema, music in cinema and uh, cinema with music are all part of various traditions. I must contemplate mm. a bit more on the French cinema that you talked about, but partly because French mm. cinema is known more in the Nouvelle Vague tradition, which is the new wave tradition, uh, which is meant mm. for festivals like Venice and Cannes and Carlo Vivari as distinct from an Oscar or a uh, yeah. multiplex. So that has an intellectual yeah. audience for which uh, yes. music, is, you know, music is like a, a billiards table uh, cue. You take it and push the audience into a trance with music uh, unconsciously or subconsciously. So uh, that is when music is helpful. But if the audience is already intently watching or if your intent is to actually make the audience watch intently the way Jean-Luc Godard tries, it basically means yeah. that you're deliberately dropping the music because you're actually wanting to wake up rather than lull the viewer. So there are lots of narrative techniques, lots of situations. And of course, it's based on the yeah. script. So uh, you, you know, you got me thinking on a lot of these things further. I'm next time I watch a Max Scorsese film, I should probably make a note of how to track the music because sometimes you yourself are, uh, even if you're a cinema lover, you get lost because yeah. you have to watch the track separately and mix it in your own head. So I saw your piece on Elon Musk, and uh, of course, he's a talk point everywhere. Uh, what do you think of Musk in terms of? as a tech entrepreneur as a as a person and also what do you think of him like hyping the whole twitter deal and then crashing it if you look at it carefully i what i have done is in a world where you know you can take a marxist view and say elon musk is a capitalist pig yeah okay <laughs> uh, you can take a silicon valley view uh, and say Elon Musk is a technology genius. You can take a Wall Street uh, view and say Elon Musk is a wealth creator. Uh, so you can take a Warren Buffett view, you can take a Vinod Khosla view, or you can take a Karl Marx view. I have decided to take a fourth view, which is from Sigmund Freud, <laughs> which is that I am trying to, you know, or, uh, or use very, very um, Indian Punjabi on auntie technique. Which means, has Elon Musk taken after his mom or dad? So I deliberately yeah. like to bring things down to the pleb level because you don't have to be uh, necessarily dropping words from a Pablo Neruda or, a, a, you know, a, a, or a, what you call... A, Noam Chomsky to be intellectual. I even quote Punjabi aunties to be intellectual. So my own uh, <laughs> simple explanation is Elon Musk's mother is a model and a nutritionist, which means she's not shallow in the sense, but she has her own identity. His father, yeah. who's today, as we speak today, his father is in the headline because earlier he was an electromechanical engineer. Today he's, um, he's become the, God forbid, 
I mean, he has become the father of his stepdaughter's child again. And uh, he says the purpose of life is to reproduce. Now, uh, his father apparently doesn't have much qualms about the society's ideas of uh, morals. His mother is a model and therefore obviously liked the attention. So the way I deconstruct Elon Musk is that he's taken after, uh, you know, both his mom and dad. And so I can link Elon Musk's SpaceX to the fact that his father has a, a daughter from a stepchild because yeah. uh, that means you're you're no longer bound by um, you're driven by desire not bound by morals same at the same time melon musk also has uh, you know as a child he might have been brought up to think without limits the way i see you know his mother is creative and achiever his father is sort of unbound so you would think that he grew up in an atmosphere to be completely free but where what i would more uh, sort of mundanely say is that because uh, he likes to seek attention. He's an attention. So he doesn't need the money now. He's got $200 billion in the bank. Thank you very much. But what does he do? He wants, he's on Twitter because he likes the idea of provoking people. He likes the idea of uh, drawing attention. For him, $1 billion lost to Twitter in a uh, lawsuit because Twitter sues him for backing out of the deal is nothing. It's one by 200th of his wealth. Whereas actually 220% of his wealth has been anyway lost in just the six weeks, uh, partly because of the US economic uh, problems and partly because of his own, um, you know, Twitter deals. So the point is that uh, I see Elon Musk uh, as not as a wealth seeker or a wealth creator, but as an uh, attention seeker and an attention creator. So there's something deeply Freudian about how minds work as distinct from uh, what the world thinks the mind works. Mm, 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 so whether mm. it... so mm, as you mentioned, this very interesting line, driven by desire and not bound by morality. <clears throat> this is how a lot of people in the world are functioning to become successful. What, is, what are your thoughts on morality? Morality, I'm told, is relative. Uh, and I like to joke mm. as an Indian, it also depends on whose relative you are. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, that apart, mm. the joke apart, the fact is that we all commonly um, agree on a certain kind of morality. You know, that, you know, mm. like the Ten Commandments, you can say, those shall not kill or those shall not cheat. And these are like ordinary forms of decency or human morality. You will not hurt people, especially physically, all that. So uh, that's... Uh, but otherwise, we live in a world in which morality is subjective, morality is relative. And um, uh, the more liberal a society is, uh, more uh, free you can be in either doing or at least talking about certain things. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you look at South Africa and its history of sex, uh, I, that's what I was thinking because Elon Musk is of South African uh, you know, origin. He still holds... Yeah. Uh, partially or one third of his citizenship is still South African. And in South Africa, you know, everything from uh, affairs to AIDS is part of the normal discourse. Sex is very mainstream yeah. in South Africa. So probably um, some of that freedom that Elon Musk and his father derive 
uh, whether you look at Elon Musk's personal life or his father, is they derive, they come from a society where this is accepted, de rigueur, as they say in French, to be uh, just yourself and pursue your desires. Whereas if you come to Asia, you'll find that controlling of your desires, concern for society, uh, uh, you know, being, you know, very, very uh, conservative in some aspects. You know, that's why Islamic societies can be both praised and be damned because uh, you can be called uh, stifling because of some of the restrictions that religion and society impose on you. But you can also be called super moral because it teaches you to be more noble in your life in many aspects, such as whether it is charity or whether it's love for others or whether it is, you know, uh, self-discipline. So there's not much for me to say that because it's a very rich, controversial subject. Uh, some of it is contextual. Uh, yeah, but there are some basic uh, thumb rules like the less you hurt other beings, whether they are human beings or even other life forms, whether it is physical or mental or emotional, the more moral you are is my simplistic definition. The rest depends on your context. And uh, since I haven't met God lately or ever, I, I can't say God <laughs> thinks about morality because, yeah, but maybe yeah. we should keep it for a different discussion. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's too deep. Uh, Manuza, tell me about what do you think of the influencer culture? We're talking about the influencer culture. It's something, uh, some of the influencers are standing out. They are, uh, uh, as I was reading one of the piece was that a lot of manipulation to reach or influence people out there so they can increase their brand values. Uh, do you think that morally that's correct? Uh, secondly, do you think, do, do you see this uh, 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 as a future where influencer culture is going to dominate uh, our uh, understanding of things and the way we follow people? Three things. First of all, let me make my first disclosure that I'm officially listed as a top 200 Twitter influencers in India. And therefore, I do <laughs> occasionally, I have myself yeah. taken up influencer engagement. So maybe I'm not, I have mm. a conflict of interest uh, if I don't disclose mm. this. Mm. But I'm very choosy. Uh, I make my disclosures while doing this. And I, 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 I only uh, do stuff which I feel will not hinder uh, general public or uh, I, I do only, I don't personally endorse brands, but I only do what you would call concept related discussions or um, interviews that within the influencer parameters. And I do them rarely. That's one thing. So that's as far as I'm concerned. So that itself should lead us to a second part of my answer, which is that there's mm. nothing wrong with influencers if it is done with a certain reasonably decent intent, including from you know, yeah. brands. But uh, yeah. I, I, it's very easy to put it in branding terms. Are you doing this for reputation or recall? That is where uh, the important thing comes, which is that as a journalist, I know that if a journalist is supposed to be a, a objective uh, entity, uh, people often use the word neutral wrongly. Journalists are not supposed to be neutral. They are supposed to be objective in their reportage. And Within that objectivity, if they find something honestly bad or good, they can say that. And that is when they build the reputation yeah. of a brand. And I use the pretty much the same yardstick even for influencers. And my simple yeah. rule is that if the if you endorse a brand and you stay 
see that it's a paid partnership and there's a level of transparency, therefore it's higher moral morality. But if you don't disclose uh, anything and simply say good things about it, then you are lower in the moral chain of whatever it is. I saw that a lot of that happening when the cryptocurrency uh, boom began. A lot of young influencers on Instagram being told to virtually go for gambling, I would call it, because uh, there is no intellectual or state backing for uh, cryptocurrency beyond a point, And you are leading very youngsters to it. So, uh, you know, if uh, if child abuse is a problem, then the you, abuse of young minds to uh, go into punting on cryptocurrency without a significant uh, social or state recognition yeah. of that is, uh, to me, questionable. Is that harmful? So... Uh, yeah. And then lots of freebies. I've just published a book. I mean, one of my book, my first book has been published. It's a translation. And um, um, a lot of book lovers on Instagram are being used by the publisher because they like to review the book. But uh, as far as I know, the publisher doesn't say, please give the book a good review. But the fact is that influencers, typically because they get a freebie, tend to be a little positive about it. That's sort of accepted these days. So, but I do believe that like fake news on the journalism side, uh, influencers yeah. on the branding side need a constant sort of a revision and vigilance, both from the point of view yeah. of uh, impact they create and the kind of uh, morality or lack of it underlying it. Yeah, yeah. So it has it has many dimensions. It, it has both the sides. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, it yeah, gives perhaps. us a job yeah. to do yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about Jeff Bezos. You met him, and he also eats cockroaches, I believe. So how what did what what do you think about him? Well, um, it is from you that I have learned that he eats cockroaches. <laughs> Jeff Bezos and I got along like a house on fire, and uh, uh. Uh, we got along very well. It was a great uh, meeting between two what I thought was fun-loving, thinking people. So uh, what I can tell you uh, is that I am a little shocked because I am vegetarian. So. But he must be having a purpose or a reason to do that, you know, because he's such an intelligent man. Yeah, so but all I can tell you is that I always thought Jeff Bezos as an insightful person. You have educated yeah. me in teaching that he's an insectful person. So <laughs> so from insightful to insectful, uh, you know, it sounds, uh, you know, a little a bit of a creepy journey, more ways than one. But I think... Uh, there's more to Bezos, but at the end of the day, if you want me to discuss Jeff Bezos the way I discuss uh, Elon Musk with you, uh, I mean, he's a great entrepreneur, very hardworking, but at the end of the day, he's a small town boy who makes it big in Wall Street and Silicon Valley or Seattle or wherever, which is uh, very typical of any country. The other thing I also find fascinating that uh, he's half Cuban and half you know, European or something like that. So he's got some Spanish uh, sort of a, a culture somewhere in his upbringing, which basically makes him a combination of what I would call a typical hardworking American ethic with a fun-loving family kind of a man in some ways. Uh, so uh, I find it very fascinating that uh, he's, he's got what you would call a hybrid vigor. So um, and uh, so I've I did not discuss cockroaches with him because eating anyway, whether it's beef or cockroach, is high, highly controversial. We have not yet reached the stage where we could discuss uh, the morality of eating. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, it shows that um, just as I discussed Elon Musk, 
in the case of what what this guy eats gives you an idea of how he's willing to push the frontiers so elon musk yeah. and yeah. Um, uh, jeff bezos both are flying rockets to the space they both are yeah. having controversial sort of personal lives or some way you know one is one is a family man who eats cockroach the other is someone who doesn't seem to have a family but has all the pleasures of a typical family man and more so uh, you know it's a sort of a uh, contrast study in contrast maybe it should make a good uh, you know a future nobel prize winning um, uh, fictional novel <laughs> based on two entrepreneurs i can write i, I will yeah. change jeff bezos name to something else and add a dash of richard branson to jeff bezos and add a dash of bill gates to elon musk and create two characters and make one of them a woman and then um, make it a contrasting study and it can be a good netflix series uh, you could be the producer <laughs> manan sir just tell me about success since we are, we are talking about two most successful tech entrepreneurs elon and jeff that sounds very have you just did you realize that it's a wonderful title for a movie elon and jeff you know uh, it's a great documentary elon and jeff yeah. all you have to do is to go and talk to a bunch of psychologists from uh, boston or and then talk to their former colleagues and go deep get deep insights into something like the pirates of the silicon valley you got elon and jeff okay We're discussing public movie ideas as we speak. Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, so so the copyright belongs to, uh, for, to you, you know, since you're throwing ideas. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, But me credit. what? How do you define? How, how do you define success? What is success uh, in today's times? Success is what the world thinks uh, you you've achieved, and fulfillment is what you think you've achieved. so fulfillment is personal success what we call success is social fulfillment so you could say when the society thinks you've achieved a lot uh, you're successful when you think when you're competing against yourself against your own background against your own past uh, you are evolving as a person i would or whether you're doing mastering a skill or even even small things like enduring pain you could describe it at a personal level as a fulfillment or a success but it's highly subjective and all depends on uh, uh, the, the circles you move in what you consider to be i can give you lots of examples in my from my journalistic career i can tell you jokes about this maybe i should do a ted talk on this yeah i think yeah i think this yeah this is something to be sort of dug definitely at a deeper level madhu sir tell me what is the biggest or one of the most significant political trends that we might see in the next coming years i was just thinking this morning that um, my i was planning to write an article saying sri lanka is going to have a new political party um, <laughs> and um, if you look at it carefully um, if you look at italy if you look at austria mm-hmm. if you look at macron in france you will and yeah. amarni party in india you will find that the uh, the everywhere you see new political parties springing up because the gen x and the gen y types or the millennials whatever you want to call them uh, broadly i would say people who are 40 and younger are uh, mm. i'm sorry i don't belong in that category anymore but uh, you know people who are 40 and younger are uh, thinking anew about politics and that is giving rise to yeah. all sorts of 
uh, trends and uh, the broad trend globally you know this may sound very paradoxical or self contradictory but i can give you an anthropological ex- uh, explanation for it one is the rise rise of the right wing partly because of what political scientist casimir de calls uh, authoritarian nativism so no, nativism is a form of a uh, right wing tendency but at the same time at the same time i find that new technologies are making the world smarter and uh, smaller so that will result in uh, the fresh influx of ideas which will essentially challenge this nativism so what we are going to see is a period of flux uh, the world today is and the on one hand geographically uh, politics is becoming nativist but uh, in terms of ideas it might become more global what shape it will take is for me to think or discuss at a, a leisure because you cannot you know it's like the stock market you can predict that in the long run it will boom again but you cannot predict the exact pattern uh, political markets are no different you know uh, but essentially i would think that uh, uh, liberal values will be questioned in some uh, uh, cultures uh, and uh, nativist and authoritarian trends will emerge but there will be a backlash there will be a pushback and there is already a pushback and the internet is the biggest single force aiding that pushback because you cannot stop thoughts on the internet even if you ban social media people still have email people still have phone calls so if you just compare it with 200 years ago when mahatma gandhi 150 years ago was using postcards to communicate so from telegram to instagram we've come a very long way so uh that that communication gap uh, there will be a lot of noise a lot of hate but after that like the manthan in the indian mythology in the mythology uh, after the wish hopefully there will be the amrit where uh, there will be a consensus on human values maybe i'm being utopian and idealistic here but one lives on hope tell me about the most uh, the trickiest thing about doing translations i think i have explained that uh, in my book which is of course is my chance mm-hmm. to tell you that it's called dream factory published by harper collins it is a translation of a tamil novel called kanavu thorichale that literally means dream factory uh, published in around 1980 uh, and it's mm-hmm. about the film world and it's about mm-hmm. uh, by sujata whose real name is rangarajan who also happens to be mm-hmm. the inventor of the electronic voting machine this is for the uninitiated so the book is available in amazon and airports and everywhere um now the biggest challenge for me as a translator i have explained in that is that i am not translating words i am translating feelings i am translating experiences mm. so i don't use language in a very simple dictionary sense of the term uh, i you, uh, you you know google translate can do that for you uh, it's, uh, in a few days it will get even only better but uh, translating mm. experiences the sights and the sounds and the smells with a sense of precision and particularly feelings you know you can still do sights and sounds and smells and that can become fairly accurate even with a machine translation but when you translate feelings of a woman who's been let down of a man who's feeling mm-hmm. frustrated uh, 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 a sense of discovery when you reach a new environment those feelings are uh, very important and personally i feel i have a simple thumb rule 
uh, I try to use language uh, in a way, uh, let's say I use English in a way that to me uh, evokes the same feelings as it did when I read it in the original Tamil. For that, you have to be conscious of not just words and meanings, but also of sounds and context and idioms uh, of various languages. You know, you cannot literally translate idioms of one language into another. So all that goes into the I mean, there is no secret sauce. There's a lot of hard work, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, Madhavan, sir, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Okay. Uh, you took a lot of your time, almost an hour. Yeah. And uh, have a good lunch. You. you have to, yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah. late for lunch. But <laughs> thank you for inviting me to the Artist Podcast. It's been nice and I hope um, it shall go uncensored. Thank you. So I absolutely, absolutely love this episode and I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it too. Do not forget to follow Metaphysical Lab handles on Twitter, on Instagram and you can find me on LinkedIn for all the updates on the Artist Podcast. Take care and have a great weekend.